0: Chapter 6 of Gloves, Past and Present. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andy Glover. Gloves, Past and Present. By Willard M. Smith. Chapter 6. Gloves in Many Marts. She of the Open Soul and Open Door with room about her hearth for all mankind. Trade, James Russell Lowell The first glove makers in Europe, we may suppose. Certainly the first, skilled in that art, to work together in brotherhoods, were the monks of the early Middle Ages. In common with many other old established handicrafts, the glove trade is deeply indebted to the Church. On this point, William S. Beck, the leading English authority on Glove Lore of thirty-five years ago, has summed up the conditions most interestingly and clearly. He says, Muscular Christianity is no new doctrine. Faith and works were once literally united in a secular sense. Before corruptions crept in, and while monastic establishments maintained the simple lines on which they had been founded... Their inmates were the most skillful and industrious of artisans. Weaving, illuminating, gardening, embroidery, woodwork, these and many other occupations were practiced sedulously by the holy friars. The original idea of the founders of these institutions was to bring together a company of Christians who were workers. Benedict enjoins his followers to fight valiantly against idleness the canker of truth. Therefore, he prescribes, the brethren must be occupied in the labor of the hands, and again at certain times in divine study. The brethren not only practiced, says Beck, but taught. The monastery became as much the center of industry as of intellect, and religion was made an active worker with commerce, in furthering national interests. The efforts of the Brethren often resulted in raising local manufactures to great excellence, so that they obtained more than local celebrity. To the monks of Bath, for instance, is attributed much of the fame which the stout woolen cloths of the west of England yet enjoy. And under their active auspices, we are told the manufacture was introduced, established and brought to perfection. In their commercial curriculum, glove-making was certainly included, as well as the dressing of leather. As early as 790, as has been mentioned in a preceding chapter, Charlemagne granted to the abbots and monks of Citan in ancient France, unlimited right of hunting the deer for skins of which to make gloves, girdles, and covers for books. These gloves, made in the monasteries, assuredly were worn not only by the higher orders of the clergy, but by the king and his nobles. They may have been a direct means of revenue among the monks. In any case, they were a favor exchanged for the patronage and support of the feudal lords in maintaining monastic property. Needless to say, gloves were one of the luxuries of early trade and barter, and it was a late period before they became, to any extent, an article of common exchange. As gifts to kings and personages of high rank, they were born from country to country, and thus, to a limited degree, were put into circulation. The Earl of Oxford, on one occasion, curried favor with Queen Elizabeth by presenting Her Majesty with beautiful perfumed gloves which he personally had brought to her from Italy. The Queen, we are told, was so vain of this particular pair of gloves that she had her portrait painted in them. Little by little, as the privilege of wearing gloves spread from sovereign to subject, their trade was popularized, and the glove market, in the modern sense, grew up in response to the increasing demand. In France, glove-making as an industry, independent of the monasteries, was certainly well established in the twelfth century. In 1190, we find the Glovers of Paris organized under a settled code of statutes received from the king. Across the channel, gloves are first mentioned as an incorporated trade. In Scotland, where the Glovers formed a company called the Glovers of Perth during the reign of Robert III, who figures in Scott's Fair Maid of Perth, and ruled between 1390 and 1406. This company was principally employed in making buck and doe-skin gloves. Thence the trade spread over Scotland, but it did not long hold its importance. Dundee gloves enjoyed a picturesque fame, but Hull remarks in 1834 that they had little more than the term to recommend them. Indeed, the greater part of them were made in Worcester, England, and were sewn cheaply with cotton instead of silk. A few gloves were also turned out in Montrose, Scotland. The leather for these, however, was sent from London. In London, the glove trade had existed for many centuries, and originally was carried on in connection with the making of leather doublets and breeches. Deer and sheepskin were used chiefly. But after the introduction of kid gloves into England from France, the former country began to make kid gloves also under the name of London Town-Made Gloves, and thus to follow the more fastidious fashions of the French. The Glovers of London were incorporated in the fourteenth year of the reign of Charles I, who, on the 6th of September, 1638, granted them a charter in which they were styled the Masters, Wardens, and Fellowship of the Worshipful Company of Glovers of the City of London. As early as 1464, however, they had received their coat of arms. Even so, the Paris Glovers must be exceeded priority in importance, as their statutes date from 1190. Moreover, it has justly been said that Gloves came over with the conqueror and were really introduced into England from France. Previous to 1066, The glove produced by the Saxons was a rude and shapeless thing, while the Normans brought with them the clever prototype on which the future glove of England was destined to be modeled. Very early in their history, the English began to experience commercial rivalry with the French, and one of the first products to be strongly affected, to England's detriment, was gloves. As far back as the reign of Edward IV in 1462, we find the English glove trade protected by prohibitory laws. These laws in later years must have become obsolete, as they do not appear ever to have been repealed, and foreign gloves were imported into the country soon after the Reformation. In 1564, however, England forbade any gloves from abroad to enter her ports. Nothing was said about the raw materials being brought from other lands. But France saw fit to curtail the shipment of kid-skins outside her boundaries, and thus the English were thrown entirely upon their own resources. French kid-gloves, whose quality, after all, it has been impossible to equal in other countries, continued to be smuggled into the British realm to a greater extent, we may believe, than the authorities then realized. The titled people accustomed to having the best of everything infinitely preferred the French luxury to the homemade article, and so it was secretly procured. But, generally speaking, after 1564, the English manufactured their own gloves from native skins, and the trade increased and became prosperous. On the occasion of the granting of the charter in 1638, certain abuses had crept into the industry And it was to obviate these conditions that the document was demanded and granted by the king. It reads, Whereas, by an humble position presented unto us by our loving subjects, living in and about our cities of London and Westminster, using the art, trade, or mystery of Glover's, we have been informed that their families are about four hundred in number, and upon them depending about three thousand of our subjects who are much decayed and impoverished by reason of the great confluence of persons of the same art, trade, or mystery into our said cities of London and Westminster, from all parts of our kingdom and dominion of Wales, that, for the most part, have scarcely served any time thereunto, working of gloves in chambers and corners and taking apprentices under them, many in number, as well women as men that become burdensome to the parishes wherein they inhabit, and are a disordered multitude, living without proper government, and making naughty and deceitful gloves, and that our subjects aforesaid, that lawfully and honestly use the said art, trade, or mystery, are, by these means, not only prejudiced at home, but the reputation the English had in foreign parts where they were a great commodity and held in good esteem, is much impaired. And also, that by the engrossing of leather into a few men's hands, our said subjects are forced to buy bad leather at excessive rates to their further impoverishment, etc., etc. In view of such abuses as these, the London Company was given very exclusive powers, one of which was to search for and destroy bad or defective skins, leather, or gloves. The name of the first master of the Glover's company has come down to us in certain parish registers of the seventeenth century, in which he is mentioned as William Smart of the parish of St. Giles, Cripplegate, Glover. In his parish, the trade seems to have been especially flourishing, Perhaps the London industry labored under greater difficulties on the whole than glove-making elsewhere. It had constantly to contend against the secret importation of French gloves into the capital city, and also to maintain its superiority over the imitations of the country manufacturers. For in England, as in France, competition between the various glove centers was intense. Many London manufacturers, because they could not make their ventures pay, actually became importers and dealers in French gloves, either underhandedly or openly, as the laws of the land would permit. Invariably, they found this greatly to their advantage since the price of French gloves was low and the manner in which the duty could be evaded at that date ridiculously simple. Despite the feelings and the best efforts of those Englishmen who sought to foster and strengthen the home-glove trade, the prohibitory laws remained always more or less lax, chiefly because the aristocracy and gentry preferred the French glove and, for the most part, were not interested in the welfare of English glovers and artisans. Until, in 1825, the ban on imported gloves was officially removed. The effect upon France was electrical. The British ports were flung open to her at a time when Grenoble, Paris, and her other glove cities were swinging back on the crest of the new wave of industrial prosperity and progress, which had received its momentum in the days of the Empire, a period which witnessed the revival of much of the former elegance of France, so lately eclipsed by the Revolution. In 1832, the legal importation of French gloves into England was 1,516,663 pairs. As many more in that same year, we may believe, were also smuggled into the country by the old methods. To France, and particularly to Grenoble, the English change of policy was one of the greatest boons which could have befallen a commercially ambitious people. To English glovers, on the contrary, the results were anything but fortunate. A brief survey of the vicissitudes of the English glove towns may serve to show how dearly the glove industry was forced to pay for the new national system of free trade. In Worcester, close rival of London, the glove craft is known to have existed since 1571, and in 1661 the Glovers' company of that city was incorporated. Here an elaborate manufacture was carried on, including Venetian gloves, made an imitation of those originally imported from Venice. As long as French gloves were not freely admitted, the beaver gloves of Worcester also enjoyed great prosperity. But with the re-importation of the former, beaver gloves went out of fashion, and the Worcester makers turned their attention to alum leather gloves which were produced in large quantities until 1825. The complete removal of the prohibitory regulations, however, was fatal to this last-named article, which could not hope to compete with the far finer product from abroad. From that date, the English manufacture rapidly decayed, despite every effort of the masters and the workpeople to readjust their difficulties. How hard Worcester itself was hit! is shown by a statement given by the Committee of Operative Glovers in 1832. It reads, There are, in Worcester, 120 master manufacturers who have been in the habit of making, upon an average, one hundred dozens of gloves each per week, which would be twelve thousand per week for the whole, but they are now making something under one-third of that number. By this means, about £3,000, or $15,000 per week, is taken out of circulation in wages alone, which money used immediately to find its way into the hands of the retail trader in the purchase of articles of consumption. In the year 1825, immediately before the introduction of French gloves, there were few, if any, work people idle in Worcester, and the trade was prosperous. On January 10, 1832, out of 1,000 men, the state of employment stood as follows. In full employ, 113. Partial employ, 465. Unemployed, 422. Of the 465, many did not average more than two shillings sixpence per week. The number of children totally dependent upon these 1,000 men was 1,748. The poorhouses were overrun, and large sums for relief were paid out of the public pocket. Worcester, the chief glove city outside London, continued to decline. In Woodstock, the glovers never were incorporated, but the manufacture was pursued from a remote period. Some of the finest English craftsmen labored here to produce a very beautiful glove, and that they attained to a high degree of perfection is certified by the fact that the University of Oxford, in 1616, presented James I with very rich gloves in Woodstock. Queen Elizabeth also received gloves from the Woodstock makers in one of her festal progresses. In those times, only English deer, sheep, and lambskins were used in the Woodstock shops. Since 1825, however, And the introduction of French kid skins, most of their ancient prestige has been lost. Hexham furnished a particular glove, so long established that we may regard it as having descended, unbrokenly, from the old Saxon glove, called the Hexham tan glove, made from native sheepskins. The gauntlets attached to suits of armor were made in the same style, and many centuries ago, it was an important trade in that place. But even its modern substitute fell into disuse about 1830. York tans were popular in the days of protection. Beaver gloves occupied 3,000 persons in Hereford until the sudden industrial collapse of that town in 1825. Ludlow turned out 70,000 dozen pairs of gloves annually and employed one fifth of its population in that trade, collecting the skins from Scotland. In 1832, not six men, we read, were employed in glove-making there. Kington was another glove center which failed before the middle of the 19th century. The glove workmen of Leominster numbered 900 in 1825, and on the eve of legal reimportation, its factories were among the busiest in the kingdom. In 1831, its shops were deserted by all but 163 artisans. A community whose associations with gloves are particularly interesting was Yeovil, where the craft was established as early as the middle of the sixteenth century, giving employment for hundreds of years to peasant workmen and workwomen, living over an area of some twenty miles. At one period, the number of its masters, cutters, and sewers was twenty thousand, and about three hundred thousand dozens of gloves of all kinds, were produced annually. An ancient folk song of the Eoville Glove Woman has recently been revived by the Fuller Sisters, to simple harp accompaniment, just as it used to be sung, as a round or part song, by the diligent sewers as they drew their triangular needles in and out of their work. It is very quaint and tuneful, marking the time of the motions in sewing, and its rhythm, no doubt facilitated the speed and ease with which the women plied their task. Eoville was famous for its military gloves for many years. Later, a fine imitation of kid gloves was made there. But these were crushed out by the return of the genuine foreign product. An idyllic industrial community was transformed almost overnight into a desperate and dangerous populace, demanding, by force, the means of breadwinning, which so suddenly had been denied it. Hull tells us that to quell these disturbances, two troops of dragoons were kept continually in the town, where, a few years before, a horse soldier would have been looked upon as a sort of centaur by the lower orders of the people. A territory not yet mentioned, which was closely bound up with the prosperity of the glove trade in England, was Ireland. Limerick, Dublin, and Cork formerly were noted glove cities. The limericks, a glove named for its birthplace, were of exquisite texture, and were greatly in favor among the aristocratic English for their property of rendering the hand of the wearer smooth and soft. These gloves were made of morts or slinks, the skin of the abortive or very young calf, lamb, or kid. Some of them were so beautifully delicate that they could be enclosed in a walnut shell. No glove ever exceeded the limerick in beauty," declares Hull. Skin collectors went all over Ireland, and the trade was a great boon to the peasantry. But after 1825 the skins were no longer worth the trouble of collecting, and a great resource of the country was lost. To one who views these facts it must be apparent that England never was intended to compete with France. In the skilled making of the finest gloves, she could content her people with the home product only by excluding all foreign gloves, and even then, the privileged who could bribe the government, insisted upon the secret importation of gloves from France. To be sure, the wave of protection rose high in 1462, in 1675, and in 1744, but in every event there came a reaction as far as the complete prohibition of gloves was concerned. Instead of supplying her own colonies with the home product, England even imported the gloves from France, stored them in her warehouses, and then shipped them at an ad valorem duty to her East Indian possessions. The truth of the matter was French glove makers early had won the first place in Europe. Struggle as she might It is exceedingly doubtful whether her rival across the channel ever could have equaled her prestige. In the heavier varieties of leather gloves, English makers did enjoy, and still do today, an enviable reputation. But here their fame stops. England had neither the inventive skill nor the natural climate to produce the perfect kid glove, for which France is so celebrated. In France itself, We already have traced, in the course of other chapters, more or less definitely, the development of the glove market. Particularly, we have followed the fortunes of the trade in Grenoble as being most distinctively the glove city of the world. We have seen Grenoble guarding her precious art from the foreigner, holding herself on the defensive against other French cities, of which, under the old laws and internal duties, She had no choice but to be jealous. We have noted how the revocation ruined many of her neighbors, even while it stimulated competition beyond the confines of France. In the 17th century, Paris and Grenoble enjoyed the monopoly of the glove markets of Europe. During the 18th century, however, these cities began to cope with Germany, Italy, Austria, and even Russia in glove-making. The vexed question of the exportation of skins was settled to the advantage of the manufacturers at home, and unnatural rivalry between the different French cities was smoothed away. The revolution saw the entire industry apparently snuffed out, and yet so deeply had the glove trade taken root in French soil that, at the first breath of the revival of culture and refined manners, Under the patronage of the Empress Josephine, this ancient art again sprang into being, and like a miracle, the resurrection of the Glovers was complete. At this point, the great clients of today appeared, the United States reconstructing itself and building up its commerce with the foremost marts of the world. The Americans demanded, among other things, the most beautiful gloves of Europe. Grenoble, on recovering from the shock of the revolution, the long dark days of the terror found, to her chagrin, that she had a formidable rival in Paris. Naturally, the capital city, the center of the court, was the first place to feel the effects of the renaissance of glove-making. Paris swarmed with workers, and could get more sewers at lower wages than Grenoble contained within its gates. In 1810, however, the southern city began to reach out into the surrounding country for apprentices, and quickly the peasant people responded by the hundreds and thousands. Many of them flocked to the town filling the places left destitute by the violent events of the last twenty years, and for miles about, sewing was portioned out to be done in the small villages and in isolated households scattered among the mountains. Grazing and goat rearing once more became a profitable occupation. It proved a long, proud pull, but the Glovers of Grenoble were not to be daunted. At last, that city's ancient prestige was restored. The War of 1870, instead of being a setback, was really a help, for the remoteness of Grenoble from the seat of war permitted her to continue working and orders from England and America, which ordinarily might have sought other channels, she filled in her factories and home shops. In 1872, to be sure, Grenoble and all the French glovers suddenly found themselves up against tremendous and totally unexpected competition with Saxony, Austria, Luxembourg, and Belgium. These countries had devised a means of placing on the market Remarkably handsome lambskin gloves, which rivaled in appearance the fine French kid product and sold for far less. But a few years of obstinately insisting upon the high prices they always had exacted for their goods soon taught the French manufacturers the necessity of finding a less expensive kid, and with the development of new mechanical inventions for cheaper cutting and sewing. Grenoble presently regained her firm footing. If the seventeenth century must be considered little short of marvelous as regards glove-making in Grenoble, and it may be compared indeed to the first five years of a child's life, in which he makes proportionately his most astonishing progress, the achievements of the industry in the nineteenth century, if possible, have been even greater." Apart from the facts of the vicissitudes the trade had had to face, the battles it had waged and won, all the vast accoutrements of modern machinery and scientific appliances now come into play. Also, a great, inventive genius has arisen, destined to revolutionize the art of glove-making. End of chapter 6